Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome my good friend, Alex Kogan. Hi, Alex. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing, doing great. Glad to be here today with you. Thank you kindly for coming. Uh, Alex is a founder of Ashland Capital. It's a uh, multifamily and student housing um, Capital Group. I don't know if I'm describing it the right way, but Alex does a lot of multifamily value-add projects and student housing. And uh, but before we do that, uh, would you be so kind as to share a little bit about you and your family and where you live? Sure. Um, as Mike said, I'm 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 Alex Kogan, president of Ashland Capital. Um, we are based out of Chicago. Um, as Mike said, we, we invest in student housing, multifamily, but uh, more importantly, I've got a, a wife and a seven-year-old son and uh, spent a lot of time at our lake house in Wisconsin and, uh, and the rest of the time, of course, in, in Chicago. That's awesome. And if you, before the, the recording started, you were showing me the view from the house. You're, you're right on the lake. Uh, I'm a little envious, but it's, it's a gorgeous view. It's pretty awesome, and um, I'm up here right now by myself, which is rare to be at my lake house by myself, and um, it's it's pretty cool. I can still work, as I was telling you before. I we looked at a deal in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which is only an hour away, so I just popped up here and able to continue working the rest of the day and enjoy the lake when I'm done. That's awesome to hear. So let's jump straight into multifamily. You looked at that asset in. Uh, Wisconsin, what makes a good deal? How do you know when you go look at the asset that you found a gem? Well, you know, it starts with, uh, of course, what I call, you know, the the desktop underwriting uh, before we even get to the asset. Um, you know, it, it has to make sense from a number of factors. It's got to, it has to pass, you know, what we do is it, it's a quick and dirty, quick underwrite. Literally, it's five minutes as it passes. The, the typical metrics that we look for. If it does that, then we'll do a, a deeper dive. A deeper dive, as you all know, uh, involves uh, a much more intensive underwriting. Underwriting meaning we're gonna study the comps, we're gonna study the asset, we're gonna study the opportunity. What is the upside? Is it a management play? Is it a value add play? Is it simply a coupon clipper? What is it? We wanna identify what the opportunity is. And of course, um, if it's a brokered deal, the OM is going to give you a little bit of insight as to what, what they see in, as the opportunity. But we're always going to look at it through our own lens and figure out um, if we agree, if we disagree, if we see something different. And actually, we, we always hope that we see something different that the OM doesn't say, that the broker hasn't seen, that the seller hasn't seen or uncovered, because that, that therein lies the real opportunity. Um, if it passes all of that and we feel like we're actually close in terms of, you know, expectations and whisper price from the broker or seller direct, then that's when we, you know, jump in the car, jump in a plane, go see the asset and validate what, uh, what, what we think is there. Um, look at the asset, drive around the neighborhood and also do um, a comp study. 
figure out what the comps are, and then actually go mystery shop that. So we did that today. We actually went and walked into the leasing offices of other competing assets, found out if they're doing concessions, look at what type of amenities, where their rents, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really, again, high level, how we figure out, is this an opportunity or not? Yeah, that's a great overview. Uh, that makes to total sense. Uh, quick question. We're now in this world of uh, very, I guess, rapidly rising interest rates. Things have changed a little bit. They're not, the rates have stabilized, but we've certainly seen a lot of volatility. Um, are you seeing better opportunities as a result of uh, Federal Reserve uh, pushing the rates up? Uh, it certainly destabilized the market um, and uh, the, the cost of financing have gone up. Are you seeing better pricing versus something that was six months ago when the rates were lower? Um, well, yes and no. Um, so what we're seeing is there's less deal volume. I think there's a big, big bid ask spread between buyers and sellers. People who have to sell, they're facing the reality of they have to sell in today's pricing, which is driven partially by today's debt market. And if, if they have to sell and they're adjusting, then then I guess you could say it's a better price. I don't really think about it as better price. I think about it as today's price, because at the end of the day, if I was paying you know, 4% on my debt uh, a year ago and I'm paying 5% on my debt uh, and then the seller has adjusted to that on a cap rate basis, then I'm not really paying a better price. I'm just paying the reasonable price today to result in the returns uh, that I need for my investors. So uh, I'm not sure it's better. Where better might actually realize itself is in a distress situation, which I do think is coming in certain deals. I've seen some and I've seen them figure out some alternative financing and get themselves out of trouble already. But I do think we'll see more of that. And that's when you're going to see people, all their equity wiped away uh, or some or all. And, and that's where I think you're going to find some great opportunities, which is, again, what you just labeled as better pricing. It will be, you know, today's pricing, but even better, even uh, even with the, the higher debt that we have today. So that makes great sense. But how do you get to distressed assets in this environment where the market has appreciated quite a bit over the last few years? And uh, I can, I mean, imagine distress if a mortgage comes to you and the seller uh, didn't prepare to refinance and they were pretty heavily leveraged and now the cost of refinancing is higher. But if they bought the asset a few years ago, uh, most of the times they can just put it in the market and sell non-distressed. I'm just curious, what do you see distress coming? What will drive the distress? What's gonna drive the distress is typically it's gonna be a poorly capitalized sponsor with floating rate debt with no cap in place. So there's an, a number of sponsors that put on bridge debt. They, they have floating rate debt. They're poorly capitalized. So interest rates are going up. Their debt service is going up, right? So you've got their debt services going up. And they planned to, to execute a business plan here. They just haven't done it fast enough. So if they haven't done it fast enough and, and their debt service is going up, their income is not going up. They don't have a cushion. They're not well capitalized. I think you know what happens. There's, they're in a negative cash flow situation. At some point, they cannot pay their debt. So what's going to happen? If they're, if they're planning and they're getting ahead of that and they, they actually model out six months and they say, 
if we can't do X, Y, and Z, we're going to be out of cash. We're going to have to sell. Then they can list the property and plan for it, right? But I think it goes back to the guy who never put a rate cap in place, was too aggressive with their business plan. They're likely not going to be as, as good of a planner. And they're going to catch themselves in the last 60 days of saying, oh, my God, I don't have cash. We're out of cash. Let's list it. What's going to happen when you list it? That's not, it doesn't sell overnight. By the time you, know, you do a BOV and, and get the property for sale, more time passes, more stress, more distress. And I think that's where people just say, fine, I'll take 10 million when, when, they, when they bought it for 14 million and, uh, and they lose you know, $4 million worth of equity. I think those, those opportunities are going to come. Um, and that's where you know, I think we see it as being prepared, having dry powder, um, having our investor base understand what, what we're doing and ready to execute. Yeah, that's actually a great example. A value-add project where the, um, the sponsor just not able to execute on a value-add and the rates went up fast and the rents haven't, well, maybe the market supports higher rents, but they can't push the higher rents on the units that they haven't renovated yet. So it makes sense. Let's and, and, didn't, and didn't have enough in reserves. I mean, so yeah, and didn't have enough in reserves, of course. The third variable, you got to have money in reserves. That makes great sense. So student housing, let's just kind of shift a little bit into student housing. So we uh, invested with you in, in the niche project in uh, Gainesville, Florida. Um, and uh, that project is going really, really well. Just you know, kudos to your great work on that project. Thank you. Uh, just curious, um, what makes a great student housing? I mean, obviously, Florida is a, <laughs> is a good market. They've been growing left and right in every possible dimension. So um, just anything special about student housing? What makes a great student housing market and an opportunity? Sure. Well, I mean, we could, we could talk about sort of an interesting dynamic. Let's, let's take the niche, for example. It's Gainesville. It's a, it's a great state. It's a great college. It's a great asset. All, all the boxes are checked. Why did we have the opportunity that we had? You had a conventional buyer that really had no experience in operating student housing by that asset prior to us. They, they didn't operate it well. They, they spent money. Um, they, did a, they did an extensive, I think it was six, seven million dollar CapEx program. They spent money on things that students don't necessarily put a value on. So that, you know, is the first thing. You don't understand your ROI. You don't understand the student demographic. Um, but the biggest issue that they had was operationally. They didn't really know how to operate student housing. They had a horrendous staff. They brought just sort of conventional property managers thinking it's, they, of course, they understood you have to lease up. It's it's leased by the bed. You have to, you know, lease up and be fully leased or, or you know, whatever you're underwriting, whether it's a minimum of 90, 95% occupied by August or else you're done, right? Or else the ship has sailed and you're waiting until some backfill from, you know, maybe second semester, but probably waiting until the next year. So operations are key. And as you know, uh, my good friend and partner, um, is um, uh, Jerry um, Jerry Wojcinski, who who we, we spoke with, who's a, an outstanding student housing operator. So we came in, we bought that asset. It was at eighty seven percent occupied, and as you know, in a matter of the time that we closed, uh, and I think we reached this about thirty days ago, roughly, we got to one hundred percent pre leased, and 
we reached our performer rents without doing any of the renovations. So it was it was a home run. Um, you know, I'd like to take all the credit, but but I can't. I've got to give the credit to the only credit I can take is, you know, I align myself with the right people. I, I hire the right people on our team to manage those people together. We're, we're, we're a great team and can execute. But the on-site leasing team did a phenomenal job. So that's what makes the difference between, uh, and, I, and I'm illustrating that specifically because you've got a great market. You've got a great asset. You've got a great state of Florida. You've got population growth. But if you don't know what you're doing, you could take all that and, and not have good results. Um, so we found that deal off market and, and turned that into uh, just a, a golden opportunity. Um, but in general, I, I think, you know, to, to think about what, what makes a great student housing asset is you have to start with the school, that market. Is it a growing enrollment? Um, and then you have to measure the supply and demand dynamics. So you could have a growing enrollment, but you have half a dozen developers that are building new, new, new product in the market and you obviously have then have a supply issue. However, you can't look at it that black and white because you may have a supply issue in the new, you know, class A top tier, you know, core assets. But if you're like the niche, we're a we're a B B plus asset. Our rents are four hundred dollars per bed lower than any new product. We really don't care if there's new product being built because we're that we're that far below that market, right? So, again, that's all to illustrate how granular you have to understand. Who are you in that market? Are you main on main? Can you charge, you know, $1,100, $1, dollars $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $
um, basically the demand for your product is is higher and enables you to to add more uh, you know higher high increases. Now let's talk about renovations. So uh, renovation student housing, it's great that <laughs> you leased it up 100% without renovations, but we have a capex budget on the niche. So when can you actually execute this? And you have to make a decision at some point. You you want to do the work because uh, you plan for it. I guess well, <laughs> if you don't have to spend the money, you don't have to. But uh, the intention was to do the renovation and improve. Um, yeah, the project. So so what we learned, um, and I'm I'm really glad that we did this. We we didn't charge. You know, in conventional, you really know what the market wants. And it is sort of a, a race to the finish line of, of executing renovations, leasing them up. Student housing, it's a little bit different. You're always testing the market. You know, what does the student want? You know, where can we get the best ROI? And we were not 100% sure. That's why we kind of hit the pause button. We, we went full force on the things we knew that we were going to do, which is the clubhouse, some exterior um, CapEx projects, some deferred maintenance. All of that is um, as has gone as, as planned or better. We're just completing the renovation on the, the clubhouse. It's going to look fantastic. What we didn't do is do the conversion uh, of, of changing some of our um, uh, four-bedroom, three-bath into four-bedroom, four-bath to have equal bed-bath parity, adding, adding the bathroom. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad that we didn't. So we watched the market. We watched how quickly did the four fours or three threes lease up versus the four threes. And, and we learned that it was definitely slower to lease up the, the units that were four threes that didn't have equal bed bath parity. So we now know in practice. So we've made a decision. We are gonna go ahead and we're gonna add the bathrooms. And now we're not gonna do it now because obviously the students are, are there, but we're gonna get everything organized uh, so that come next summer, We've got our, our window of four weeks, and that's where we're going to come in and do a couple of buildings. Um, and then in, in the meantime, we've got a, we've got a few things that we're, we're going to do in terms of countertops also to test the market, replace some countertops and backsplash. And what we'll do with that is we'll start pre-leasing. You can start pre-leasing units generally right after the new year. Um, every school's got a little bit of a different sort of culture and when the students pre-lease. So after the new year, we'll have some units that have a, a new countertop, new backsplash. And if the demand is, starts to pick up that people want that, we'll just do more of them. We'll have more uh, more units that we'll add new countertops to. So, you know, uh, I think that the main, the main theme here is sort of gauge, watch, and react to what the students want. And, and don't just, you know, do things that don't have an ROI. Yeah, that's very... Um prudent to do this. You pilot some changes and see the response. And if these are well-received uh, changes, that gives you some uh, inputs on, on, on other projects or a lot of other units that you can you can do. Makes total sense. So um, what's a path? Just, just kind of refresh folks. Um, what's a life cycle of an investment like this in student housing? Typically, uh, what is it, three, four, five years? At which point it's, do you sell? It, 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 final question. <laughs> When, it, when is the asset ready to be sold? Because, you know, obviously you will be buying in with an exit in mind. That's something. Yeah. You know, it, it, from that respect, it's, it's, it's no different than conventional multifamily. Most 
most people uh, will underwrite, you know, call it to a three to seven year hold. And we do the same. We kind of have an average of, of five years as a hold. But you have to watch and evaluate your asset on a quarterly basis. What's going on in the market? So if something shifts in the market, let's say uh, in student housing, for example, there's um, I could point to a couple of schools that had major PR issues. They had racial issues. They had all kinds of you know riots. In fact, the school had a black eye. If that happens, you kind of know, you know, we've seen this movie before. The next couple of years, enrollment's going to suffer. People are going to be dropping their rents. It, it, it really, you know, it's, it, it, it suffers a reputational hit. That may be a signal for you to consider selling, right? If some, something unexpected like that happens and shifts the pattern of enrollment, um, it could be that. It could be supply, as we talked about. In our case, you know, not if we're if we're kind of a B class, '90s, uh, late '90s built asset. So, you watch the market, um, and you know, if 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 it's a great asset, we'll look at refining and holding it long term. But the key is to be able to have flexible debt, to be able to pivot, and whether you're going to hold it long term, short term sell it opportunistically we have we're, we're closing a deal um next week on the 19th for a conventional asset we've only held it 18 months somebody came along and said to us we will pay you what you modeled i mean they didn't know what we modeled but they said we will pay you what what you are going to sell it for in five years but only after 18 months i mean we looked I mean, we were like really like even insecure we're like what are they seeing that we're not you know what I mean? We even interviewed them, said, what is your business plan? Show us your underwriting. Um, tell us your business plan, you know, so we can understand what you're going to do from a, from a buyer's standpoint. And it was amazing. Like, there is no way that we would take the kind of risk that they're about to take. So the, the moral of the story is we're able to exit that loan. We're able to sell. And, and we're going to get nearly 40% IRR to our investors and and that's that's a justifiable reason to exit early and sell early. So kind of gives you the gamut early, you know, mid-range, long-term hold, multiple reasons why you'd want to have flexibility and and adjust to the market and the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for the comment. It's what you said is actually amazing. We've seen a uh, funny thing, we've seen this in Q2. I don't know, has I haven't yet seen it in Q3, but in Q2 we saw a number of exits. Uh, where people paid the price that um, you would expect to achieve upon execution of value at, and they're still paying it. They're still paying it for whatever reason today. They're still, even the rates are rising, but they are paying you the price that you you modeled for a few years out. And uh, I've seen this, um, you mentioned student housing and multifamily. I've seen this with storage. Some REITs come in and they got a big uh, amount of cash to deploy. And they, they'll basically say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll finish the lease up. If you've got a couple of years of lease up, we'll pay the price as if it was leased up all the way to the full occupancy. It's it's amazing that um, some money is just looking for lower level of return. And and uh, maybe the underwriting is very different versus uh, versus your model. It, it's the, the way I, I like to think about this. And, you know, you tell me your thoughts. Um we come in as kind of, you know, in the value-add phase of the project. This is what you do. Value-add, we invest in value-add. The REITs, especially the projects that are institutional quality, they need to come in and they need the yield and they need to deploy capital. 
So they just come in and then they buy almost the hedge against inflation and they don't really care that, that they're paying. Uh, they just want, they want the deal. So it becomes, you, you love that kind of buyer and the decision to sell becomes pretty easy because you, you sell today, you redeploy the cash at the next value add deal is substantially better return opportunity. So what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's different kinds of buyers, but absolutely, the the one that you just described is you know it's a hedge. They're low leverage. They need to place capital. They're actually losing more money by holding capital in their fund rather than deploying it. So there's different motivations, and then there's there's the other guys who are extremely aggressive. And you know, to give you an example, we did a value add. Um, the buyer of this asset thinks that they're going to come in and put another fifteen thousand a door which is going to result in completely changing the demographic because the current demographic will not be able to afford to pay those kind of rents. So it's a huge risk for them because they're going to have to completely turn the demographic to justify that CapEx to pay those rents. And, you know, we just don't see it. We don't see a path to do that. We cash out. We'll go, we'll go deployed in something we have much more conviction in. Yeah, that makes sense. I- <laughs> I've seen this story again and again. When the, the next uh, syndicator, um, they they just want to do the deal and then they sell the story over bigger rent and estimates. And you're right, not every asset can support uh, even further innovations. At some point, real estate is all local, and you just you know wherever the asset is, if it's a Class B area, you can't really easily sell Class A rents, even if you make the units look like Class A. It's just just hard to do that. That's right. Or, or you're going to, you know, it's going to be a lot of work and risk to do that because you're literally going to have, um, you know, people leaving. They're going to move out. You're going to have to find, you know, completely new people to move in to pay those kind of rents. And that that's high risk. I mean, that's that, you know, what that is, that's speculation. And, you know, um, as I've always said to our investors and just my own philosophy, we love doubles and triples. If you want to go for home runs, that's fine. But that's not us. Right. Somebody is, is, is going for a home run and they're speculating with a lot of risk. And that's just not what we do. Yeah, agreed. The, the light value adds is, is, the, is easier to manage, easier to do. And niche with a light value add. And that's from that from risk perspective, it's a much lower risk. And, and if you can still get uh, strong returns on a risk-adjusted basis, the economics are pretty good. Um, any final thoughts, comments, suggestions, best book to read? Uh, we're almost out of time, so I just wanted to see any final thoughts, and then how would folks get a hold of you if you're interested to learn more about uh, Ashland Capital? Sure, it's um, it's AshlandCapitalFund.com or my email, which is Alex A L I X at AshlandCapitalFund.com. Um, in terms of books to read, I'll tell you, I'm so exhausted on on real estate books and and business books, so. I've made a commitment to myself that for a while, I'm not going to read any business books. It's all going to be about just personal um, and just completely thinking about different things, whether it's art or, or exercise. Um, that, that, that's my suggestion. I think um, a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in this one dimensional, you know, grind, you know, build, buy, reinvest, and everything they do and read is of that mindset. And um uh, I think you can go through a lot of burnout doing that. So I am shifting my brain and, yep. and my time to things just outside of uh, of just business. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, you're a member of Tiger 21, which is an elite mastermind, and they're probably having you read a bunch of stuff, and and uh, it, it can be overwhelming at some point. You, you want to take a break and kind of just d- d- don't do business, business, business. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm going to give you one last point. So with Tiger 21, we went to the Holocaust Museum two nights ago in, in Skokie, right, right where I live. And, and that's sort of one of the things that remind me of life is short. We both know about our, our history and, and the Holocaust. And, and it, it, just, it just reminds you, life is short and it's not just about work, right? Um, so that's one of, the, one of the great things about Tiger. They expose us to all different kinds of amazing opportunities. And uh, you start to think about things a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, life is not all about work. It's really, uh, I like to correct this joke. This is, uh, I've said it before, but it, most people can actually appreciate this. So this this is a joke, it's a terrible joke, but it comes from the days uh, when I worked in the technology world. So we had this really bad joke. So the joke was like this. So what are supposed to be priorities in life? It's supposed to be God, family, work. But the bad joke, this is the good old IT guys used to say, we pray to God that the family understands that the work comes first. <laughs> horrible, horrible. But uh, I'm glad I'm out of the IT world. And I mean this with all due respect because uh, really long hours and a lot of uh, a lot of that was in the technology world. So Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate your, your wisdom. Uh, folks, again, if you want to reach out to Alex at ashlandcapitalfund.com, uh, appreciate you very much. Enjoy the summer. Enjoy the lake. And uh, happy fishing. Catch some good fish. (laughs) I hope I can repeat that and catch another one. It might have just been a fluke. Uh, Well, one time it's a fluke, but if you do it twice, it becomes a pattern. Good luck. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Good to see you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.